0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, the Georgia Politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host, and joining me on today's show, after a little bit of a hiatus, is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm doing as well as anyone can do in the purgatory between taking the bar and knowing if you passed it. So <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful life.
0: I'm sure you're on the edge of your seat over there.
1: Uh, I try I try never to be on the edge of my seat, but oftentimes find myself there uh, for. Reasons that I should not be because I just get riled up too easily <laughs> and engaged in like all our stories today, all all interesting topics that I'm excited to get to get into with you.
0: Yeah, it's good to get together with you again. It's been a summer of travel for me, but one thing I'm very excited about is starting in September, I'm finally coming back to Georgia. Um, I've been bouncing around our fair state for, for quite a while now between Florida in North Carolina, visiting friends and family. But I'm going to get to settle back near you again, Luke, and and we may get to do this thing in person sometime soon.
1: Yeah, looking forward to that and, you know, um, looking forward to not having to explain to people that my co-host for a Georgia politics podcast is in D.C. Uh, Very much looking forward to that.
0: Well, today I am back in the D.C. bubble. I'm in Rockville, Maryland, just outside of D.C. For one last time before I finally get to come home. So on today's show, we are going to check in on where things have been in Georgia politics on a lot of different fronts since we last recorded about a month or so ago. Um, There is news out of the Senate race that we have continued to track. There's also news in other statewide campaigns. Burt Jones, um, state senator, he has announced that he is going to run for lieutenant governor. He joins the state senate pro tem Butch Miller in that race, um, and that is going to be Maybe similar to the Secretary of State's race that we've talked about before, a competition for who can be the most Trump like in Georgia. I mean, we'll see, we'll talk about that and see how it might shake out in the general election or how it impacts Republicans' chances there. The other issue that we continue to track on this show is the battle around voting rights in this state and in Congress and some of the most recent developments there, both. Georgia Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff have introduced legislation in Congress that would in various ways protect people's right to vote. But, of course, that legislation has been caught up in the failure of particularly the U.S. Senate uh, in figuring out a strategy for actually getting enough votes to get that bill passed and the barrier that's created by the filibuster and its backers. Um, And then we'll check in on a couple other uh, Other uh, news and notes from around the state, including Stacey Abrams announcing a nationwide tour. Uh, But interestingly enough, we um, spend a lot of time on this show assuming that Stacey Abrams is running for governor in 2022. She's doing a nationwide tour that has no stops in Georgia, and she's sort of participating in a pre-campaign buildup, if you still assume that she is running, that is unlike any other Georgia has ever seen. So we're going to check in on that as well. Um, But first, Luke, I actually want to start with the big news out of Washington as we're recording on Tuesday is that the U.S. Senate has passed a nearly $1 trillion investment in infrastructure spending. This happened on Tuesday and it happened with the votes of 18 Republicans in the U.S. Senate, along with all of the Senate's Democrats. Um, This is a big priority for President Biden. He campaigned really throughout 2020 on believing that bipartisanship could work again, believing that he could secure major legislative accomplishments through a bipartisan process. And at least on infrastructure, he has managed to do that in the U.S. Senate, although it does still have to clear the U.S. House before it becomes final. Um, And it's tied up with other Democratic priorities like a larger $3.5 trillion spending package that progressive Democrats want to get done. And at least in the House, progressive Democrats may withhold their support for this $1 trillion bipartisan package until there's a stronger guarantee that the bigger $3.5 trillion bill is going to get through the U.S. Senate. Luke, just sort of your initial reactions to what really turned into kind of a a normal, painfully slow legislative process in Washington, to spend a trillion dollars on bridges and roads, some climate investments. Um, but it, but the return of sort of a, a normal governing order in Washington, heralded by Joe Biden. Uh, what do you think of that?
1: I think, well, you know, uh, want to avoid premature celebrations. I think it's great for the country that this bill was able to get through the Senate to get through the Senate with so many Republicans voting for it, because things have been pretty terrible in national politics for you know quite some time and so even if it's just a a small step towards doing something that's normal especially when it's something as important as infrastructure which I mean has been a goal of presidents for quite some time you know the Obama administration got some infrastructure in their rescue plans uh, when they came into office but before uh, that like I, I can't think of the last time we did a big infrastructure bill um, maybe I'm trying to think do you know do you, like have you seen this in the coverage
0: No, I mean I think these things used to generally have much less fanfare to them like you would That's do true. a transportation budget and that was a much more bipartisan process in fact well
1: there. I mean there's there's two kind of categories I would think about this though because this this is you know this bill is also you know to, to put in the scope of the accomplishment of Joe Biden is that like this is not the just the what you should be spending year over year infrastructure, which you're absolutely right, would traditionally have passed in a transportation budget. I mean, this is some more long term investments uh, like trying to get rid of all the lead pipes that are somehow still in America and trying to bring rural broadband to a lot of communities that still don't have internet access, which is you know, basically the electricity of today. And I mean, those are big projects. And so I don't think we should either diminish them or enlarge them too much but the the thing that I think is the most interesting for for you and I discuss uh, on on this topic and I'd like your your thoughts on this is the, the thing that I think specifically to georgia that's important from a political context because i just want to like put put on a pedestal for a moment how great it will be for roads and bridges and infrastructure in georgia to be better and to be better around the entire country and there's a lot of other places that can talk about that and be far more educated and interesting on that so i want to just note that I think it's great, Uh, but we're hacks and we're terrible. (laughs) So we're just going to talk about the political consequences, Uh, which I think the primary one is that this, let's assume it passes eventually, it'll probably be messy in the House for a couple weeks, but they'll get it done. They'll pass it. Joe Biden will sign it. There'll be, you know, Republican and Democratic senators and House people at the White House and it'll be a big hurrah. We did it. Um, And then some stuff will start getting built. I think it's going to be great for Joe, not just Joe Biden, but also quite specifically John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, because, I mean, their entire campaigns were basically, hey, you just voted for Joe Biden, uh, or, you know, before the November election, hey, you kind of like Joe Biden, elect us and we'll help him, and we'll get some stuff done. And that's a great campaign pitch if you've never been elected before, but then you have the very hard job in Washington of today of actually going up there and doing something when you preface your entire campaign on, hey, elect us and we'll do something. So if this bill passes, Joe Biden signs it, it becomes law. Bridges get built in Georgia. Wireless gets brought to Georgia. That's going to be really a, a boon for especially Senator Warnock, since he will be up in 2022, you know, but these projects take time to build. I mean, you don't build a bridge, uh, you know, in a a weekend. So I'm sure Ossoff will be able to go to some unveilings, probably in 2026 when he's up, and get the benefit of this and be able to say, "You elected me to get stuff in Washington. Check out this bridge that I helped build," you know. And I, I think that's gonna be. A really, really powerful campaigning tool for them, more than a lot of other people who did not just so closely tie their campaign to elect me, help Joe Biden, things will get done. I mean, that was the campaign pitch. And by getting this bill done, of course, they were not the only reason it got done, but they were a big part of it. Um, And just just by being there and pushing for uh, this to get done. And so I think that's going to be the big long-term takeaway for Georgia, besides, again, as the great benefits of infrastructure.
0: Yeah, and I, I think this stacks up, interestingly, with our next topic, with where Republicans are on the U.S. Senate race to compete against Warnock next year. You know, I thought it was really notable in this bill. This isn't the largest provision by any means, but Warnock successfully got a provision into this bill by working with Senator Ted Cruz, of all people, to... Uh, to prepare the way for a new highway, a new interstate highway called I-14 that is aimed at connecting military bases throughout Georgia and other Southern states through Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and all the way to Texas, connecting military bases in the South to some other like high value corridors. Obviously, this is not the biggest thing in this bill, but this was an instance that Warnock can point to and say he went to Washington, he got a substantive accomplishment on behalf of a constituency and like military town voters who maybe don't love him very much. Um, but he worked to their benefit too, and he he served as their senator too. And this is sort of the the much older style of taking care of your people back home, of delivering on the things that you said you would deliver on, and not getting caught up in sort of the national political narrative and all of the divisive issues that are that are in that. And I do wonder if that, you know, sort of return to an older style of governing, particularly if Warnock wants to highlight that in his reelection bid, if that is going to be useful to him because another piece of this that I thought was really interesting where I sh- where where I think there is sort of a, a need for some of this focus on responsible governing is that the, the AJC has a story, I think Greg Bluestein wrote it about a bipartisan group of mayors across the state who are looking at this trillion dollar infrastructure package, a lot of which is going to have money coming to local governments for local, you know, really localized small projects. And Republican and Democratic mayors in our state want a slice of that funding. And in particular, they they have to go either through the congressional delegation or to the Biden administration to get that funding um and this gets in the weeds a little bit but there six of our eight republicans in the US House delegation declined to participate in the earmarks process which is basically the process in the house where you would designate certain amounts of funding for specific local projects and previously what would happen is these mayors these people who care about these local projects would go to their member of congress would say what we need in our town what we need in your district and then the congressional delegation would go and be representatives of that. Democrats participated in this process, and two of the state's Republicans did, including Buddy Carter, but but most of the Republicans did not. And so it was this example to me, it's in the weeds, but it's this example to me of Democrats prioritizing this sort of straightforward, responsible governance around issues that, you know, building roads and highways for a party that prizes itself as addressing climate change. Isn't exactly the biggest issue. But making sure that those roads and bridges are safe is just like a responsible thing to do, so long as we continue to drive on them. And Democrats made that a priority and are going to have the opportunity to go to Georgians and say they did that and they did it in a bipartisan fashion, and that's why you should send them back to Washington. And that really pales in comparison to the place that the Republicans are at. I think it could be to their benefit, but it's going to be a really Interesting test to see if that kind of politics still matters.
1: Yeah, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think that benefit is going to be felt more on the statewide level than in these individual congressional races, just frankly because of the fact that due to gerrymandering that will definitely happen before the November 22 elections, I'm I'm not sure how competitive <laughs> our, our current seat Makeup will be. Um, there'll probably be one or two seats that are competitive, and uh, but maybe not even that. And so, unfortunately, I think I think as interesting as it will be to see what people campaign on and what people talk about, um, I really think it will primarily be on the state level. But I would love to be wrong about that and love to see you know some successful Democratic campaigns based off of uh, bringing home the much needed bacon.
0: And even regardless, like, Warnock's Senate race may be the most impactful Senate race for the composition of Congress in the entire country. No pressure. Yeah, like, Republicans may take back the House on gerrymandering. We'll talk about voting issues here in a minute that seem to be stuck in the mud, if not completely dead. But, like, Democrats' ability to retain the Senate and have a Biden administration... You know, I think is 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 pretty impactful even if they end up losing the house, although it was a mess in what was it twenty two thousand ten to two thousand fourteen <laughs> when we had this a
1: debt ceiling
0: when Democrats had the Senate and uh didn't have the house and and watched the house just descend into a shit show so I don't True. know um but that, I think, is is interesting when you look at where Republicans are in the Senate race to replace Warnock. So I think we can move on to that here. Herschel Walker is still rumored to be a likely candidate for the U.S. Senate, although he has not committed to it. He has just said that he's thinking about it. I believe Donald Trump has said that Herschel is likely to do it and Herschel is li- almost guaranteed to have Donald Trump support if he ultimately decides to run for this seat. Um, So he's kind of waiting in the wings. But the thing that's been happening over the last few weeks since we've last recorded is that Herschel Walker has been the subject of a lot of of stories digging into his past, focusing on Herschel's uh, challenges with mental health issues. I think it's worth noting that Herschel himself has been really forthcoming about the mental health issues that he has dealt with. He wrote a book about this in 2008. About having disassociative identity disorder, and how that's you know created a lot of uh, problems for him in his life, a lot of real challenges for him to deal with. Um but somewhat related to that is um, these stories that have looked at one uh, violent episode with him and his ex-wife, where he told, I believe it was the sister of his ex-wife that he was gonna kill his ex-wife and her new boyfriend um there's also stories about him uh embellishing the value of some of his businesses and his business dealings and then the story that came out this week as herschel has been on this train with other republicans about combating voter fraud which doesn't actually exist but you know he's been on that train his wife actually voted in Georgia in the 2020 election despite the fact that herschel and his wife still live in Texas still have residency in Texas um And so, you know, my question, Luke, looking at where Herschel's at, and Herschel is sort of sitting there as a potential candidate, along with Gary Black, the agriculture commissioner who we talked about before, who seems to be running this inside strategy, gaining the support of former governor Deal and a third of the state sheriffs in the last month, Um, and then a new sort of up-and-comer in Latham Sadler, who was a Navy SEAL and a Trump administration person, but who maybe potentially represents kind of a different generation of Republican. How long do you think Herschel can sit in this position where he's noncommittal about running, and he doesn't take a very active defense of himself on these stories that have highlighted some troubles for him personally? How long can he actually sit this out, bide his time, and wait to jump in and still have a realistic chance of winning this primary.
1: Uh, the last minute before qualifying closes. <laughs> Cause then he's legally barred for money.
0: Make sure all the he runs as independent. So, so why, why do you think he can wait that long? Because, because Donald th-
1: Trump will go on TV and endorse him the next day or, you know, put out a message or he can't tweak anymore, but the channels. <laughs> He'll put something out and endorse him. Do an event with him. So, I'm sure.
0: You know We're, we're kind of operating the, in this basic framework in a lot of these Republican primaries on how much does Donald Trump still matter? You know, you can go to a Marjorie Taylor Greene rally, and it's very clear that all those people who are at that rally, no matter what they do, they're going to they're gonna vote how Trump tells them to vote. They're going to believe that Trump should still be president. Maybe that he's getting reinstated sometime this summer. Who knows? But in the broader Republican electorate, is there any waning influence for Trump? Or do you think that it really is as simple as Herschel jumps in whenever he decides to, Trump says vote for him, and the nomination is his?
1: I think in the Republican primary, absolutely. I mean, Trump, big out, the next closest Republican in the primary in 2016 by almost 200,000 votes. I mean, he's still very popular among the Republicans in the state. When I drive around rural Georgia, when I drive home, I still see three or four Trump flags. Like he is the party uh, for a lot of folks. And I mean, the, the Trump hold on the primary electorate, is different in different states, but I think in Georgia, it's pretty strong. People who are very strong, fervent, early Trump people, you know, run the state party and uh, are running very high profile campaigns against people who have opposed Trump. And I think more importantly, too, there's a lot of people like who we mentioned earlier, you know, Congressman Buggy Carter, who would otherwise be very, very serious running in this race and building a team and raising money and campaigning around the state who are just sitting on the sidelines uh, very publicly because of the fact that Herschel is considering this. And I think that just the fact that the only other serious candidate and by serious, I mean someone who has been elected to a other office and, you know, have to leave that office to run is gary black and while yes it's it's impressive that for latham sadler who i've never heard of to raise over a million dollars uh like i just don't think that's gonna matter if your choice is herschel walker the very very famous in georgia former running back you know george dog who everyone's heard of running even against Gary Black or someone of Gary Black's caliber, no offense, Gary Black, like he's just going to have an easier time, even if you didn't put Trump in there. And then if you put Trump in there as well, I just think that's going to be really hard for someone to overcome in what is already a fairly crowded primary with a bunch of nobodies. And so, you know, just the path to getting to 50% plus one is a lot easier for Herschel Walker than it is for, I mean, pretty much anyone else. I mean, I I think just about anyone running would have a pretty hard time uh, beating him, assuming what we know now holds, which is that most people are going to be in a holding position until um, Herschel decides to get in. I mean, really, the only person that I would put money on against Herschel right now is if David Perdue decided to get in. And he's pretty affirmatively said he's not going to do that. But he's the only one that at the moment with what I've currently seen that I would think might be able to beat Herschel in these circumstances just because of the fact that um, I, I just think no one is no one on the Republican side has a great message that is something other than Donald Trump is great and I love him. And if you're not endorsed by Donald Trump and you're running against someone who has been a. Pretty long time friend of Donald Trump and has his very enthusiastic endorsement. I think it's just going to be a lot harder because, especially when Trump was president, there's a lot of times where it was quite clear that Trump didn't really want to endorse anyone in a race or he very clearly wanted to endorse another person. And those endorsements, you know, sometimes they were great, sometimes they weren't. But when it is a really full throated, I really like this person endorsement, he does tend to do a little bit more for them. And like, we'll go to events and we'll speak at least a little bit more or uh, more about them instead of just about himself. And so I, I think that will just play benefits for him because like he does actually genuinely seem to like Herschel. And I think that would help.
0: Then do you think it's a mistake on the behalf of Republicans to not have people out here who are putting up a stronger defense of Herschel Walker, even if he doesn't want to put up that defense himself amidst all of these stories, because it does kind of feel like these things are piling up a little bit. I know it's really early in the process. Maybe people will forget about all this stuff.
1: Well, well, no, I mean, the thing I would say, Kyle is like who you think is putting this stuff out. Cause let me assure you, it's not. Democrats. Yeah, no, I mean,
0: I think that's part of the problem is that a lot of Republicans reportedly, you know, Greg Bluestein wrote a story about this, a lot of Republicans are uneasy about Herschel's candidacy. And so I think, you know, I guess if you're Raphael Warnock and in his camp right now, you got to feel pretty good about where things are at, because um, there's a lot of concern among at least Republican activists and consultants, things like that about Herschel's candidacy. But it does, you know, at least as you argue, it does seem like Trump's endorsement could overcome all of that. But then all of that uh negativity just hangs around Herschel in advance of him having to take on a democratic incumbent in the US Senate and Raphael Warnock.
1: Yeah, and there and there's there's two things I would say too. One one to clarify, while I'm very strong on Herschel's chances of winning a primary if he actually gets in it, uh, I do not think he will be a good or strong general election candidate. I think Herschel would be very reminiscent of the twenty twelve Senate can candidates where, I mean, for all intents and purposes, that was a really bad map for Democrats, and they very easily should have taken the Senate back, probably, but just by running really bad candidates, the Republicans failed to do it. I feel like Herschel would probably end up being one of those because of the, um, you know, just very, very bad problems that, you know, he has had in his personal life and his professional life, and I, I think that, um, unfortunately, you know, would, would be a big part of that race. And I think that considering those liabilities, he will have a hard time because of the fact that I think for him to run, he is inevitably going to fall back onto the same kind of campaign that Loeffler and Purdue ran. I think, unless it's just like a nostalgic I was a great running back. You should elect me to sing it campaign, which I don't think it'll be that. Um, and, And I just don't think that will work. If anything, I think it will completely backfire because that does not seem, you know, at least, at least with the political environment of today. And also what I think is more likely going into the future is that like, he will be a very popular candidate for the people that already love Donald Trump, but Donald Trump did not win the 2020 election, and uh, the electorate that Donald Trump successfully brings out and and excites is one that I don't think Herschel Walker, or frankly anybody, uh, will be as good at bringing out, and the people that have moved to the Democratic camp in recent elections are the ones that tend to vote more in midterm elections, and so the math of this does not feel great to me uh, for them, so I, I definitely don't think that... This is a great bet for Republicans to make. I think they're just kind of getting pushed into it because and this is you know, my second point is very similar to Trump in 2016 is that like everyone is hoping that they're going to just scandal their way out of him running. And I don't think that's going to happen. Like I think if Herschel Walker doesn't run, it will be because he just didn't want to. And I would not blame him for not wanting to do it. Um, And if he does run, I don't think any of them will beat them. Because I think, as I alluded to earlier, like no one has a message in this party except Donald Trump is great and I love him. And if Herschel is that person, then unless one of these new people, unless, you know, this Latham Sadler or somebody comes up with some argument about why Donald Trump's chosen senator should not be the nominee, then I I don't have high faith for anyone being Herschel in the, in the primary.
0: I think it's worth noting on Herschel's account that Herschel's own struggles with mental health issues themselves should not be disqualifying. And the fact that he wrote about them pretty extensively in a book in 2008, um, Patricia Murphy has a great column on this that we'll link in the show notes, but um, you know, he, Patricia notes this, that he was a bit ahead of his time when he published that book. Um, At the same time, though, you know, that's not going to hold back other Republicans from um, criticizing him over this. And, you know, there are also other separate incidents that also bring a lot of scrutiny to Herschel Walker. So, you know, it is going to be a challenge for him in the general election if he ultimately makes it there. Um, But we will see how that all will shake out. Luke, there is a former Georgia football, I was going to say great, but maybe kind of good, maybe okay player who has announced his candidacy for statewide office this time. And that is a state Senator Burt Jones, who is going to run for lieutenant governor. He's going to join the Senate pro tem Butch Miller in that race. And Burt Jones, just aside from being a former walk on at Georgia, I didn't realize this, but he... I
1: I ain't either. This is news to me. Yeah. He
0: noted in his launch video today that not only did he walk on to Georgia, he says, despite being too small and too slow to play, um, he also became a captain on the 2002 SEC championship team. So good job for you, Bert. Um, But he has also been kind of one of the ringleaders in the state Senate of the Group of folks who has been most aggressive in questioning the outcome of the presidential race in Georgia, believing that Trump won our state, and engaging in all of the election fraud shenanigans. Um, he was one of a few senators who went out to Arizona to tour their uh, election audit that they were having that that experts and even some Arizona Republicans called a sham. He's been part of this push around Senate Bill two hundred two to have the state look more closely at Fulton County's election administration. He wants hearings in the state Senate on that subject. And Luke, in in this primary, as we come back to this framework of how much Trump support matters, Burt Jones is clearly the more Trumpy candidate in the race. Butch Miller has kind of left some daylight between himself and Trump uh, by clearing the ultra low bar of conceding that Joe Biden is the president in a way that I'm not sure Burt Jones would Um, and although he, although Butch Miller is pursuing a lot of this voter fraud stuff too, it's, it's to a lesser degree than what, what Bert Jones has done. in in terms of indulging conspiracy theories about election fraud, um, what do you think about how this race shakes out? Because one interesting thread to this race is that while a Trump backed Herschel Walker, uh, would be taking on an incumbent, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. This is going to be an open seat because Jeff Duncan is not running. Um, And so whoever, whatever Republican comes out of this mess, they're going to face a Democrat who doesn't hold this seat either. Um, What do you think about this primary between Burt Jones and Butch Miller?
1: I I really don't have a whole lot of thoughts. I I found myself having my first thought, surprisingly, uh, be that since zell miller's uh grandson is running wouldn't it be great if we had miller v miller just to confuse all the voters <laughs> uh but uh that you know that terrible joke aside good luck brian miller and uh you know uh is it yeah butch miller um you know good 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 like oh i just realized too they have the same initials because it's butch miller and brian miller zell miller's grandson so yeah that would just be awful uh so Hopefully that doesn't happen because it'd be really, really confusing. Uh, but but that that point aside, I think it will be interesting to watch how these races develop because if my instinct on Herschel Walker and my unabided belief that if he runs and Trump endorses him, which I assume will happen together, uh, that he will win, I mean, this this race does not seem to have the pure Trumpy Trump preferred person in the way that I was talking about how Herschel is and that both Butch Miller and Burt Jones are Trumpy it, you know, um, Jones is definitely more. So I, I believe that Jones was one of the people that was rumbling about potentially running against Kemp. So I think it is notable that he's not doing that. Um, and that seems like Vernon Jones is the only person doing that thus far. Uh, another Jones and, Lots of, lots of double names tonight. it's, you know, just trying to keep me on my toes and keep me focused on uh, the details as I always am on this great program.
0: There are currently Uh, just as a note, there are currently four different Joneses who are calling for an audit of Fulton County's elections between the state house and state Senate. So excellent. All the Joneses going after Fulton County.
1: Yeah. And I, I really think, these statewide elections are always so interesting because uh, it's very unpredictable who will win them. If we had put, you know, it's a good thing you and I, Kyle, did not put any money in twenty eighteen on who was going to win some elections, because we would have lost all of it probably. Um, because just on both sides of the aisle, frankly, it was very surprising. I think are the results, and you know, for. A firm example, Brad Raffensperger, was not either of us, ours first choice for who we thought we'd win that Republican primary. And so with this being so early, I have a lot less strong thoughts on it um, than I than I will later. Uh, but I think you are right to point to the Secretary of State's race. I think that is going to be, you know, barring some surprise in the governor's race. I mean, that's going to be the showdown. And I think... Again, assuming Herschel Walker runs, that becomes a coronation probably. And so the the battle is going to be Secretary of State. And I think to the extent that Jones and Miller on the Republican side in the lieutenant governor's race, to be specific about which ones we're talking about, associate themselves in that fight in any way, uh, I think that will probably be a little bit predictive. But my assumption will be that they'll probably be on the same side, which is... Uh, against Bragg Raffensberger, even if they're not both fully embracing Juggie Heiss. I assume they both will be against Bragg Um And these issues will definitely be in the race. It, uh, I think the thing to watch here is just how much they differentiate themselves between each other, um, which, you know, as you've noted, they've already done a little bit. But I don't know. In, until some things go until we have more time to develop and they start really crafting their message i think they're probably going to sound pretty similar and it's really going to be a question of like who you know goes to more barbecues and gets more yard signs out and talks to more people and gets more ads on tv and facebook uh, on for them at at the moment until i until we see more that's that's my first
0: thought the other dynamic i think to watch is if you had a clean sweep on the republican side of Herschel in the Senate nomination, Burt Jones getting the lieutenant governor nomination, and either Jody Heiss or David Isle getting the Secretary of State nomination over Brad Raffensberger. that would be a strong sign from the party's primary electorate that they buy into the election fraud conspiracy theories pretty strongly. Because Herschel's been going on about this, Burt Jones has been the most aggressive about this between he and and Butch Miller. David Bell Isle has been very aggressive, even against Jody Heiss, saying Jody Heiss is actually a fake supporter of Brad Raffensberger. But they're all in on the election fraud conspiracy theories that Trump should have won. Um, they are definitely indulging the people who feel that Trump should be reinstated. Uh, you know, it, I mean, it, in some ways, it feels like they're taking their cues from Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that would be that would be a dynamic to watch to me because Butch Miller, I think could come into this Lieutenant governor primary and point to some more substantive accomplishments, point to a more uh, middle of the road among conservatives, at least governing style. He'll probably point to Kemp's accomplishments and his role in those and say, elect me and governor Kemp and we'll, you know, continue this legacy on for four more years. Um, That's, You know, I I could certainly see, you know, Butch Miller, Gary Black, Brian Kemp leaning in a little bit more, you know, the bar is pretty low here, folks, but leaning in a little bit more to the substantive things they will do. Whereas Herschel, Burt Jones, Jody Heiss, David Isle just seem totally on the conspiracy theory train. And like, you know, that's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch because Georgia voters pretty clearly rejected that kind of campaigning in 2020, you know, it's, it's going to be a different world in 2022. If COVID is still an issue, it's going to be Joe Biden's COVID problem and not Donald Trump's COVID problem. Um, so the, So the Democrats, I think, have a little bit lower of a threshold in the state next time than they did last time. But I don't know that, you know, when you look at moderate voters in this state, and the resurgence in participation and enthusiasm among Democrats, that this is a state that's ready to elect Herschel Walker and Burt Jones and Jody Heiss to statewide office.
1: Yeah, I I generally agree with you, uh, especially, you know, that that formation uh, of candidates because of the fact that incumbents get bonus points for being in the job, for showing up to work every day as the lieutenant governor, as the secretary of state, but if it is open seat and it is a situation where, you know, Democrats' popularity nationwide has not just imploded for some reason, um, <laughs> knocking on wood, uh, then I, I I agree with you. And I, I definitely think there's a big difference between those two slates that you mentioned. And I think the, let's call it the more Kemp-friendly slate of Gary Black and uh, Butch Miller, I, I definitely think that would be less actively harmful to the gop brand uh, with the voters they need to hold on to the most as compared to the heist trump walker you know (laughs) slate that i just think would probably be pretty disastrous and would i mean still probably be close because again you know Biden one ossoff and warnock one but those are close races i think i think either one of these scenarios would be close but i think democrats definitely have an edge in that other group
0: So the other factor at play here that is giving Democrats a lot of heartburn right now is the push around voting restrictions. We've talked before about Georgia Senate Bill 202 that makes it more difficult to vote on a lot of different ways, uses a lot of different pathways to do that. One pathway that has come under renewed scrutiny in the last month or so has been the possibility that the state using authorities under Senate Bill 202, could take over local election administration. This is particularly relevant to Fulton County, where uh, Republicans in both the House and the Senate have started a process to begin a performance review of Fulton County Election Administration um, that could ultimately lead to the state replacing local elections officials with partisan state appointees, that would then run all of the administration of the 2022 elections in Fulton County, a place that provides a significant number of Democratic votes to Democratic candidates for statewide office here in Georgia. And there's been a lot of heartburn among Democrats about what Democrats nationally can actually do about that. You know, Democrats in Georgia and some other states, including Texas, have been relatively powerless to stop their state legislatures from adopting these restrictive policies. And so all eyes are on Congress to see what Congress can do to combat some of these voter suppression laws being passed in states. Our senators, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, they have introduced legislation dealing with this issue. Warnock has legislation that he recently released that would create some guardrails around the process to have the state replace local election administrators, um, meaning one, that they can't be replaced purely for partisan reasons. There has to be some clear finding that there was some inefficacy by local election administrators um, and that local election administrators who are suspended or removed from their positions, like they can be under Senate Bill 202, they would have the ability to sue in federal court regarding that suspension or that removal, um, and and have a chance for federal courts to step in and say that state officials have acted in an unlawful manner in the way that they've you know approached the way they deal with local election administration. One challenge, though, when you when you look at Fulton County, is that despite the voter fraud conspiracy theories having no basis in fact. It is also true that Fulton County has had its fair share of problems, maybe more than its fair share of problems, at administering elections. And that even though that election board is run entirely by Democratic appointed officials in a very Democratic place, those officials have struggled at times to make it easy to vote in Fulton County the concern with this performance review process is that there actually is somewhat of a substantive basis for the state to replace local election officials in Fulton County. But there is concern also that the Republicans who are running this process will do overly partisan things in doing so and make it harder for voters in a Democratic stronghold to vote in key statewide elections in 2022. Luke, though, I think the question for Democrats is, Voting rights legislation in Congress is basically stuck at this point, stuck in the Senate. Warnock has this provision. Ossoff has a provision that would create the first affirmative right to vote in federal law. But are either of these things actually going to be on the books and have an impact on the 2022 election? No. <laughs> Loud and clear. Why, yeah, why not? I mean, and how fucked are we?
1: Well, because there's the filibuster Oh, maybe you've heard of it there. There, I, there are not 10 Republican votes for this bill. There were over 10 Republican votes for building bridges and bringing Wi-Fi and getting leg out pipes. But there just isn't for this issue, because unfortunately, voting rights is now a parsing issue and Republicans don't believe in that anymore like they used to. Um, and unfortunately, due to that, I think this bill is very un- either of these bills are very unlikely of passing any form. I and mean, I think that's unfortunate. Um, one thing I want to push back on that you said, though, is that if you reviewed Fulton County, that, that, that like, there would be a strong argument for replacing the the current board. And maybe there's an argument. But I think the much stronger argument is that, and this will be shocking to people, it costs a lot of money to run an election. And I don't think Fulton County gets nearly enough money to run those elections for how big the county is and how many people are in there. And I think that is probably, if you did an honest audit and assessment of why did this not go as well as it could have, it will probably be, well, there's not enough locations for people to vote and there's not enough machines there. And there's not enough people running those locations for people to vote for all those things to go smoothly. And the only way that you solve literally every single one of those problems is money. And there's nothing a board can do, no matter how talented they are, to change the amount of money they have uh, to administer elections, especially when you pass laws in the legislature to make it almost impossible for them to get outside money to assist in their ability to run these elections. And so I'm sure they could be better. I'm sure there's improvements the board could make, but I, I think all of those would probably pale in comparison to the difference that having more money would make.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, just to come back to whether or not these provisions from Warnock and Ossoff are going to matter in the 2022 cycle, it has been reported particularly for Warnock that he is involved in conversations with Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer on how to pull together a voting rights bill That is more narrow than the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, more narrow than those but focused on gerrymandering, focused on this potential threat from state elections officials taking over local elections boards, to come up with some kind of legislation that can get full democratic support in the U.S. Senate and at least find some solution specific to voting rights on the filibuster, whether that's some sort of reform that requires the standing filibuster again, or whether you flip the process and require 41 Republicans to block a bill instead of 60 votes to advance a bill. Um, you know, I, I think all of that's out there. And I think Warnock's going to participate in all of that. I do kind of wonder, this is like, you know, if you listen to advocates on this issue, this is an existential threat to the Democratic Party's ability to have really almost any influence in Congress. And I I find it hard to believe that at the end of the day, given that Democrats were actually pretty lucky, lucky to get full control of government in the government that we're in now, that they would just let that opportunity slip by completely. So it's hard to chart the exact path forward for, This legislation for these provisions for whether or not there will be anything in statute that makes it harder for Republicans to stack the decks in their favor in 2022. But I do find it hard to believe that Democrats are just going to sit and let this opportunity fly completely by.
1: I guess Kyle Hayes does not remember the years of 2009 or 2010, but (laughs) we shall see.
0: Well, no, I'm not I'm not blind, but I'm, you know,
1: I I just don't think anything will happen is is my firm position. I think Joe Biden will pass some very nice sounding executive orders, because if the bar is something less than the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, then I mean, that's basically writing up a bill that says I heart vote. And that's it.
0: (laughs) Well, you could do something pretty direct on gerrymandering. And I think that there that is would, an, that,
1: that would by definition be more than the John R- Lewis voting
0: rights act. Well, but it wouldn't be more than the, for the people. So that the idea is that combining those two sets of provisions and for the people and John Lewis, that there will be some smaller bill that draws on some of the ideas from both of those also adds in this new stuff on local election administration and it being taken over, but is small enough in scale, so as to basically stop the worst behavior, but I guess in Joe Manchin's eyes not appear to be a Democratic power grab. And I think there is an argument for Joe Manchin, particularly on the heels of a bipartisan legislative accomplishment that he played a big role in and a type of politics that he has professed a lot of belief in, that if you end up in an environment where republicans can basically stack the decks at will and either shape the votes in redistricting or make it harder to vote in person or or early or or whatever the case may be but but target voters specifically and then on the back end also target election administration that that may tilt the scales to an extent that even joe manchin is uncomfortable with and it would clearly for republicans continue to water down any pressure that they have to govern in a bipartisan fashion. Like, it's a damn miracle that there were actually 18 Republicans who felt it was in their political interest to just spend a trillion dollars on hard infrastructure. But if that, if even the incentive for that is gone, and it becomes totally about Republican primaries, that's the entire power structure of Republican politics, then Joe Manchin's approach to politics is effectively dead, too. And so I think that is somewhat of an argument for Joe Manchin to find a way, you know, he won't he won't do this for the strength of the Democratic Party, but he might do it for continued life for bipartisan governance. If he feels that what Republicans will do with the authority that they have given themselves is just like totally beyond the pale.
1: Well, Kyle, uh, you know, I hope you're right. Go go visit joe Manchin on his houseboat while you're up there in dc and tell him all your your good happy go lucky thoughts about how he should be voting but uh based on his current behavior and statements I, I would be very surprised uh if he does that and even more surprised if there were more than one or two votes for any voting rights bill of any shape or form in the current composition of the united states Senate on the republican side so We'll see. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. This is one of those places I, I firmly hope that Kyle can have a I told you so hour. Uh, but I, I at the moment, I don't think that's likely.
0: It'll be a whole damn hour. And we're going to record the thing live from Joe Manchin's houseboat. So y'all stay tuned. Um, Another person who is going to care a lot about whether Republicans exert total control over all election administration in the state of Georgia in 2022 is Stacey Abrams, presumably, she is setting up to run a rematch against Governor Kemp in 2022. It seems to be the biggest open secret in Georgia politics, but she is approaching a potential race in a very non-traditional way. Um, if you, you know, for anyone who has not completely lived under a rock in Georgia for the last you know, three years, Stacey Abrams has become a national political celebrity. She is a superstar in democratic politics And through her advocacy on voting rights with her organization, Fair Fight Action, she has taken the issue of voting rights to the national level. Uh, But it raised some eyebrows among Georgia politicos in the last week when she announced that she was doing a nationwide tour of conversations with Stacey Abrams that is pitched as an evening of candid conversations about insights on politics, leadership, entrepreneurship, social justice, and being a true voice for change. She's having all those conversations in states that are not Georgia. Um, this race of eyebrows, I think, for Democrats who may harbor some concerns that she might not run or that her national political celebrity is more intriguing to her than potentially becoming governor of Georgia. Um, but Luke, she is basically unrivaled for the Democratic nomination for governor in 2022. It's hers if she wants it, and it's going to be hers if she wants it until the very last day of qualifying. Does this tour in her national advocacy, generally her national profile that she's built for herself? Does it concern you about either the possibility that she won't run for governor in 2022, or at minimum that her focus is just elsewhere?
1: Well, that's not the question I wanted, Kyle, but I'll answer it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is, I am, I worried that she's not going to run a little, but not really. Cause I, I, I think she's going to run to give the pitch for why Stacey Abrams wouldn't run. I think it's, is pretty straightforward and clear, which is she is unquestionably a national figure right now. I cannot think of any statewide elected official, uh, who has more of a nationwide profile. Uh, and she's not even statewide elected and that is sort of the exact reason why she might not want to run for governor even if she knew she would win even if she you know had a crystal ball and said, i will be the next governor of georgia she might not want to run because if she does then she is the governor of georgia and there are some expectations in that position namely that you govern the state of georgia (laughs) and you can't be the national figure that she currently is and also be the governor of georgia uh, uh super effectively i mean you can try it and, but and if anyone could pull it off i'm sure it's her but it still would be a strain i think for anybody even someone of her m- immense talents and so that is a pretty good argument i would say uh on an individual level why she might not want to run because she has to make a choice and i think that is a choice that is is a difficult one for anyone um in in that c- circumstance because uh, the, it would just be a big change from the high profile that she's had in the party and the universal uh, acclaim that she's received. And, and finally, I think also importantly for her is like you only get to be the comeback kid once, <laughs> you know, like you only get to be a martyr who lost an election. You should have won once if you lose two, especially if you're, you know, twice in a row to the same person for the same office. I mean, it's very hard to come back from that. I'm sure there are examples where it's happened, but I, I immediately off the top of my head cannot think of one. Uh, if someone knows, please tell me because I'd love to have that in, in the back of my mind to be able to pull out a moment like this. Um, but yeah, it's like you can't lose twice and, and then be going higher and higher. So it's, I mean, incredible risk. And so if you don't run, then there's no risk. And yeah, for some people, that's great.
0: Yeah, look, that type of calculation might make more sense to me if both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock had lost Senate elections last time, if it really felt like Democrats still had a statewide ceiling that they couldn't get through. But Luke, if you assume that she is running, that she is fully invested in a campaign for governor and that she believes she can win, why does this type of approach of a nationwide tour, of being a political celebrity, of doing book tours and all the stuff that she's been doing. Why does all that make sense when she presumably wants to still be governor?
1: Well, I don't think she wants to be governor. I think she wants to be president of Georgia. And I I, I know that's flippant, but like, I also think there's, there's some truth to it, which is, I think right now what she's doing is that she recognizes that she has a, a nationwide brand and that one of the ways that she's going to be successful as a gubernatorial candidate is using that national profile to her advantage. And that national network is going to be important for her because, I mean, for a governor candidate, even incumbent one, I mean, Kemp's raised a lot of money. I mean, he's raised $12 million this entire cycle thus far uh, from the you know June 30 report. And he has $9 million cash on hand and raised three point nine in the last three months. And, I mean, those are pretty good numbers for... Uh, any gubernatorial candidate. And so for Abrams, the way I think, you know, she wins, it requires a, a whole hell of a lot of money. And I mean, you know, Joe Biden didn't win Georgia with pennies. I mean, he spent a lot of money here. And so I think when I say she's running for president of Georgia, I think it, there's a joke in presidential campaigns that you aren't running for president, you're really running for governor of a dozen states. (laughs) And you're running very different campaigns in each of those dozen states. And I think Abrams is sort of reverse engineering that where she's running for uh, nationwide to be the governor of Georgia. And she's doing these book tours, going, doing all these talking events to build up networks of people to raise money for her is what I think In, in, in both like grassroots capacities and in you know, higher dollar uh, donations because I think she's probably going to build a very, very substantial war chest. Because I, I can't even imagine how much money she's going to raise the first day once she announces. But I think it will be a whole hell of a lot, and I would be very surprised if it does not break records in Georgia and probably nationwide. Honestly, um, so I, I just expect that fundraising haul to be ridiculous, and I think this strategy of going on a nationwide book tour right before you announce plays into that pretty well. And so that, that's my firm expectation of what she's doing.
0: I also think if, if there was a real possibility that she would not run, you might see a little more jockeying among the Democrats who would vie for governor in her absence. But, but the, the leading stars of the democratic party who are not Stacey Abrams, the more state-based ones, whether it's B. Wynn or Jen Jordan, uh, Eric Allen. Uh, now, now we hear that uh, Zell Miller's son Brian Miller is grandson. also grandson. Zell Miller's grandson Brian Miller is also running for lieutenant governor. You know those candidates have filtered themselves down into second tier statewide races. And I, you know, once you get in this deep, you've got an announced campaign, you've raised money. It seems like it would be difficult to switch and go jump in a governor's race. But I think they're all, all operating under the assumption that Stacey Abrams is very likely to run. So, for all you Republicans well, uh, out there who are raising Democrats' heartburn over the possibility that Stacey wouldn't, maybe you'll get to dunk on us one day. But, but I too find it unlikely.
1: Well, I mean, I would go further too. I mean, and you know, like you can read the AJC and know this, like. Abrams is friends with these people, <laughs> like, you know, like she knows them, <laughs> like they, they get on phone calls, I'm sure. And so, you know, unlike the Herschel Walker situation, where Trump is not a team player and Trump is not someone who cares at all about the Republican Party as institution, like Stacey Abrams does care about the Democratic Party's institution. She was very instrumental in helping Joe Biden win Georgia and helping Raphael Warnock run at all. And she was a big booster of his and helped Ossoff and him get into the Senate. And so, I mean, I I would be frankly shocked if she was seriously considering not running and had not told anyone (laughs) that uh, because of just how much that would jeopardize uh, the political project that she is a part of, which is getting Democrats elected and pushing for progressive policies. And so I agree with you. Uh, that due to the fact that really nobody on the Democratic side has lined up that I'm aware of at all to can even consider this race. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure she is running. I'm sure there is some plan here that, you know, someone in 20 years will write a book about, about how ingenious or uh, folly it was. Uh, but uh, I, I definitely would be very shocked if she's not running considering all those circumstances.
0: Let's close here with the return of COVID-19. We are now in the fourth wave of rising infections in the state of Georgia. Um, as as you probably absorbed from the national coverage, the state of the pandemic is that this is largely a pandemic among unvaccinated people, that most of the spread and all, nearly all of the hospitalizations and deaths that are occurring in Georgia and in other states right now particularly in a lot of the Southeast, where a lot of that region is in a kind of a hotspot outbreak right now, that most of the most tragic outcomes are among people who are not vaccinated. It is also becoming clearer with the rise of the Delta variant of COVID-19 that people who are vaccinated may play some role in transmitting the virus, that this version of the virus is about as uh, transmissible as the chickenpox, which is more transmissible than previous variants of COVID-19 that we've dealt with. And um, that there is some concern that people who are vaccinated, who have breakthrough infections of COVID-19 with the Delta variant, that they are carrying as much virus, as much of the virus particles as people who are not vaccinated. So, so that has given rise to a lot of concerns about where we are in this pandemic as it drags on into like 18 months of this here. Um, And it is particularly concerning as children in Georgia go back to school. Um, A lot of schools across the state have opened up in the last few weeks. And in the metro Atlanta area, the AJC reported that the metro Atlanta districts have reported more than a 1000 COVID cases in their schools. That's not an astronomical number. um, But it is concerning given that
1: well, I, I would push is, back. I mean, I would say that it's like an astronomical number just because most school districts have only been back for a week. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty big number in, in my opinion. But
0: Yeah, I mean, it's concerning given that concerns that the Delta variant is more transmissible, that it does spread more easily among younger people compared to prior variants, and that this really could be, if you haven't, this version of the virus that could be more transmissible in schools that a lot of the cases you might be seeing in the first couple of weeks of schools may be from people who picked it up while traveling and other hotspots over the, the last few weeks of the summer, um, or the fact that more testing is picking up, um, higher, higher rates of viruses of the virus than was available in terms of testing during the beginning of the last school year. But the, but underlying all of that is the fact that kids under 12 can't get vaccinated, but they're going into schools where it's not entirely clear that every district is going to require masks. I think several have done that, but there's a lot of political pressure, particularly on Governor Kemp, to stop schools from requiring masks and political pressure from people who raise doubts about the vaccine, who raise doubts about how deadly COVID is, that protective measures like masks are still necessary. And so that puts the state in, a, in, I think, a particularly tough place. And it's a place, a lot of states like Florida and Arkansas, Louisiana, Missouri, a lot of states in our region are in that same boat as kids go back to school. Luke, though, in, in terms of the politics of this, you know, Governor Kemp wants to run on a protecting lives and livelihoods message. And I think he would prefer that COVID was behind us. Um, and at the same time, I think he doesn't want to lose control of this virus, but he also has a lot of political pressure to basically declare that it's over and that all these protective measures are just unnecessary. Um, I don't, just as, as we wrap up here today, what are your thoughts on the state of the pandemic where we are now and in any, um, vulnerabilities you see if the Delta variant continues to spread and, and Georgia's vaccination rate remains low?
1: Well, I think we are all very lucky in the state of Georgia that the legislature is a part-time legislature that is not in session right now. Because I think the pressure to take the foot off the gas would have been enormous a couple months ago, you know, two or three months ago. Um, And the fact that there was no opportunity for the legislature to prematurely prevent a lot of health measures from being instituted, like has happened in other states, I think, is very, very good. Uh, Because while I am not super confident in Kemp making the best decisions in this area, I do appreciate the fact that he has, he at least has the legal ability to do it. And so um, I am hoping that this is something that is not a long-term problem, and that uh, it is a spike that happens and fades uh, and that not the beginning of a new and much more sustained wave. And I, I'm that's what I'm hopeful for. I'm not super confident that that will be the case. I hope we see better policies from the Kemp administration here. Uh, but I, I'm not super hopeful of that either. Um, I, I really I have very little prognostication uh, to do with this. My only thought and hope is that if this does be come a real outbreak and if the numbers continue in the way that they have thus far that uh, the Delta variant is more transmissible and deadlier for uh, children than the previous strains then I I really hope that the narrative and the political arguments uh, fade away and that we just start focusing exclusively on the science uh, because when It's adults making bad decisions. I don't like it. I think there's more that could be done and should be done to prevent people from doing that. But at a certain point, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. But if it's kids, then, like, we have obligation to protect children, (laughs) I feel like. Uh, And uh, failing to do that, I think, would be a very, very bad, not only, you know, political situation, but moral situation. And I would be very disappointed in our state if we could not get past political arguments to do what is best for children who cannot be vaccinated at this time and so I'm I'm hopeful that we don't just fall into the same camps uh, if this does actually start to be something bigger but uh, I'm not super hopeful for that but I'm happy that at the very least Kemp has options whereas a lot of other governors don't right now and so grateful for that.
0: Well I think we're going to leave it there for today we covered a lot of ground today Luke who knew that we could take about a month off in the summertime and and come back to just a a show bursting with news.
1: And, you know, luckily mostly uh, good news or interesting news rather than just the, you know, parade of horribles we had uh, previously.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we will uh, be back again soon. um, And then we're going to be on a more regular schedule in the fall when Luke and I can get together and do this in person hopefully the health situation is in a position where we can still do that by the time I make my way back to Athens. But in the meantime, we are going to leave it there. So we will be back with you soon. Luke, thanks as always for joining the podcast.
1: Happy to be here. And if you haven't already, get vaccinated.
0: Yes, please go get vaccinated. We're all ready for this to be over. Alrighty, I'll stay safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning into PeachPod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to PeachPod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.